Welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast, helping health professionals stay up to date with the latest news and evidence about medicines and medical tests. Hello and welcome. I'm Jill Thistlethwaite, GP and medical advisor at NPS MedicineWise, and I've been a health professional educator for many years. I work with Anna Semecki and Steve Morris at NPS, the hosts of many of our podcasts. This is a slightly longer and special edition of our podcast series, developed with funding from the TGA to support the recent changes in the regulations for prescribing opioids. The topic of opioids use in chronic non-cancer pain is a complex one. MPS is running a program for health professionals and consumers with tools and resources to help reduce the harms of opioids while ensuring adequate pain management and quality of life for people with chronic non-cancer pain. Please see our website for more details of this program. In this podcast today, we will be mainly focusing on tapering opioids. I am joined by Associate Professor Michael Vag, Dean of the Faculty of Pain Medicine for the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists, and Don Firth, a representative from Pain Australia's Consumer Advisory Group. Welcome, Mick and Don. Before we start the discussion, would you like to say a few words about yourselves? Mick? Thanks, Jill. Um, So I'm a rehabilitation physician and specialist pain medicine physician uh, based in Geelong. Um, And I'm currently the the Dean of the Faculty of Pain Medicine, which is the professional body um, that's responsible for the specialty of pain medicine in both Australia and New Zealand. And in fact, we're, we're unique in the world in that in these two countries, pain medicine is um, established as a particular specialty by itself, rather than being a subspecialty of something else. Um, so that makes, makes our faculty uh, and our environment in Australia and New Zealand a bit unique compared to the rest of the world. Thank you, Mick. And Don? Yes, hello. Um, thank you for the opportunity to tell some of my pain journey. Um, at one point, I was contemplating back surgery due to the excessive pain that I had that fortunately I found out was in large part due to the opioid levels I was taking to get rid of the pain. Um, More of that later, of course. Um, So I hope it will be of help to fellow chronic pain sufferers to hear some of my story. Thank you both for being here. Tapering opioids can be challenging, as we know, uh, both from the literature and our own experience and from talking to GPs um, during the course of our programme. GPs such as myself may find it hard to know where to start with the tapering process. So Mick, how would you start and could you step us through the process? Sure. Um, In some respects, um, tapering is easier than you think. In some respects, it's more difficult. Anyone who has the cognitive and motor skills to write a smaller number consecutively on each prescription that you write can can taper opioids um, because in, 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 its, in essence, the rate of reduction of the medication and, um, you know, how, how quickly it's done is, is kind of the easy part. What, what is critical for succeeding um, in, in opioid tapering is actually setting the ground or setting the scene um, for it to be successful using what we understand to be the best, most successful techniques for doing that. And the number one thing 
that um, you know is helpful uh, is that the person who is on the opioids really needs to buy into the decision and and if possible to actually drive the process. Um, there, there's good evidence these days that the success rate for long-term dose reduction is much higher uh, in people who actually initiate it themselves and who are given um, you know, a certain amount of autonomy over the process and, and people who are working in collaboration with their healthcare team to achieve a dose reduction. That's, that's the ideal way to do it. Um, so a lot, of the, a lot of the issues with getting started in, in tapering opioids is to do with addressing the person's um, concerns or their fears about reducing the dose and, and being able to reassure them that, in fact, although there are issues that will need to be sorted out along the way, um, that, in fact, the, the likeliest outcome from a dose reduction overall is that people's pain will be much the same and their quality of life will usually be significantly better. So that's really the key to start is, is to actually um, be able to provide a sufficiently good therapeutic alliance with the patient and, and enough education and information for the person to come to that decision themselves and then enlist you as an expert advisor to help them do it. Yeah, so it's very important, as you say, for the, the patient to be motivated to undertake this challenge of tapering and they're going to be quite concerned and anxious uh, to start with um, as they do this. Um, so in terms of where you start from the dose reduction, you, you mentioned it's about reducing in a stepwise fashion. How, how do you actually plan that um, and what sort of time would you take to do that? Sure. So it depends a little bit on the individual circumstances of the person that you're working with. Um, for someone who has been on a very long-term high-dose uh, regime, um, I would usually go at about 10% per month um, of their starting dose. And my initial goal would be to try and get them to 50% of their starting um, dose within about six months or so. Um, and if you can do better than that, great. But Again, just like people who've been on prednisolone for a long time and whose adrenal glands have become so suppressed that they can't safely come off it, um, there's evidence that that happens in some people with opioid, um, you know, long-term opioid therapy, and it may be that, that people's brains are not able to produce enough endogenous opioids to maintain mood, to maintain, you know, motivation and, and um, people's ability to think straight. Um, so sometimes you have to settle for not getting all the way down to zero. Um, and it may be also that you come to a decision point where you need to choose between a higher level of pain um, and a lower dose. And, and that's where the patient's preferences also are pretty important. Yeah, I, yes, I can see that. So it's, it's getting to the lowest effective dose is the goal. Um, and sometimes that mm. might be off the opioids completely. And sometimes it might be staying on that low dose for a length of time. Um, and then presumably you could revisit that decision later to see if you can get off that off that late. Absolutely. The, yeah, yeah. And look, the um, we used to think that the nervous system was relatively fixed and that it couldn't really adapt very quickly. Um, we now understand much better than that, obviously, in a whole range of areas. And and persistent pain is one of the most complex neurobiological phenomenon that occurs. 
And so when somebody may not be ready or able to reduce their dose at a particular point in time, waiting around for 18 months, two years, and then trying again, you often will succeed where you didn't succeed before if you just keep having a go at it every so often. And if the person understands that, in fact, there usually does, for most patients on moderate or high-dose opioids, there usually comes a time where those drugs are not working as well as they used to, and that's a good time to initiate the dose reduction. Hmm. So, Don, you've been prescribed opioids for chronic non-cancer pain in the past and you managed to taper off them very successfully. Could you tell us a little bit about that journey um, and how you felt? Um, well, yes, I, I've had chronic pain most of my life from a series of injuries and gradual worsening osteoarthritis. This was exacerbated by uh, building an underground house about 10 years ago and also um, having to... Uh, have a knee reconstruction, a full knee replacement, which uh, was acute pain. And correctly, I was prescribed Endone and OxyContin in fairly heavy doses. Um, in fact, my doctor um, gave me a script for 100 tablets and said, um, you know, use them as you need. Um, so the level of those opioids took care of most of my other pains for a time. Um, as I gradually weaned off them, I got to a level where the pain came back on the other other injuries and osteoarthritis pains, such that I um, gradually increased the level of um, such minor opioids as tramadol in, in its varying forms. And I discovered that I was not waking up till well after nine o'clock in the morning and my will to live had gone. Um, and so I thought I'd got to do something about this and went booked in to see a surgeon for surgery. At the same time, I managed to find a telehealth um, service from St. Vincent's who said, by all means, go and see him, but why don't you try this? And it involved tapering. Um, after that, I um, joined the ACT chronic pain support group and did a number of local hospital courses and um, found out an amazing amount of things that I didn't know about my body and that some of that pain could be in my mind, and that if I was to reduce the opioid dose, I may not be in any more pain after a while. Thank you. That's that's really interesting to hear these stories, that these things, you know, tapering can be successful. So, Don, um, how long did it take you to taper off your opioids? Well, I was. it's quite amusing. The first um, interview I had with St. Vincent's Telehealth, um, I assured them that I had no intention of giving up my opioid levels, but was looking for further help. And they assured me that they had no intention of taking me off them. Indeed, they might up them. And that reassured me to carry on working with them. And um, I mean, I still am not completely off, but compared to where I was four years ago, so it, is, it has taken that long, um, I've paid maybe three years to get down to almost no opioids and then just an occasional for acute episodes rather than continuing chronic ones. What has been the greatest difficulty, and I, and I feel for other fellow sufferers, is that I, I have a great ability to research things and join groups and find things out. And it has taken me an awful long time to understand that the pain in my head from precisely one point in my lower back is, is a memory pain rather than an actual necessarily real pain. Um, and that has been the longest part of it. And once I've been able to accept that, I found it very much easier to reduce the amount of opioids that I've been taking, if that sort of answers your question. No, that, that's, that, that's fine. And it's really useful to hear from people 
talking about their experiences. So Mick, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, or OIH, is not a well-known adverse effect of opioids and can often be confused with tolerance. Can you tell us a little bit about what OIH is and how you would differentiate it from tolerance? So, so opioid-induced in, hyperalgesia is um, it's a phenomenon that is produced by the adaptions that the nervous system makes to long-term, usually high-dose exposure to opioids. That said, it has been documented to occur in as little as a few hours if you are using extremely potent opioids like um, some of the fentanyl derivatives that are used in anaesthesia. So there are case reports of people becoming severely hyperalgesic from uh, one or two doses of some of those very powerful fentanyl derivatives. Um, but, But essentially what it means is that the net result of those adaptions the nervous system makes is to leave you more pain sensitive overall. And and this is something which um, explains a phenomenon that we had observed for a long time but never really understood, which is that when people who say were on opioid therapy for chronic back pain had a, had a broken ankle or a dislocated shoulder or needed a an appendix out or something, they seem to have very severe pain um, and their opioid requirements were far in excess of what you would have predicted, um, even accounting for tolerance. So tolerance is the effect that when you um, are exposed repeatedly to a particular opioid, your body gets better at handling that particular opioid, it adapts to it, and so you eventually need more to get the same effect. So tolerance is a one-way thing where, um, you know, you you just need to have a higher dose to get the same effect over time. And uh, opioid hyperalgesia is actually going a couple of steps further than that, where it's uh, you're not just needing more. You may well be tolerant. In fact, you probably are tolerant if you're developing opioid hyperalgesia, but you're also becoming more pain sensitive in areas that are nothing to do with the original pain. And that's only been relatively uh, relatively recently recognised. And um, not all opioids have the same potential for causing hyperalgesia. And basically, the more powerful the opioid, the more likely it is to cause um, hyperalgesia. And codeine is the only exception to that rule. Mm. So as you say, it don't, you don't need to be on opioids for a long time to, to get this hyperalgesia. It can happen quite quickly. Not, not if you're on very yeah. strong ones, okay. yeah. Um, So now I'd like to ask you some questions about the recent changes to opioid prescribing um, through the TGL and and in the PBS. Mm. Um, So there's been some updates to indication, amendment of clinical criteria for PBS prescriptions, Mm. um, and the introduction of these 12 monthly reviews for those patients requiring more than maximum quantities and repeats. could you just um, explain a little bit about these changes um, and what they're for? Yeah, so the intention of the changes, um, it's been brought about by increased awareness of what's the optimum way to use opioids and um, in particular the move to 
uh, introduce reduced pack sizes for immediate release opioids was something that has been flagged as an evidence-based intervention for quite a while because what was happening was that if people are going home from hospital, it was more cost-effective um, for the intern who was doing the discharge prescribing to give them a whole box of endone compared to, say, five tablets, which might be all they needed. But because the five tablets or ten tablets was a non-PBS script, it cost the patient more money. Um, and it also increased the leakage of, of strong opioids out into the general community because if you give someone a box of 20 and they might only use three or four of them, then, then there's the rest of the box sitting around, you know, potentially being available to anyone who wants to access it. So for various good reasons, that was, that was always on the cards, that particular change. There were a number of other changes the TGA looked at, including changes to the prescribing information, changes to the pack sizes, um, limiting certain doses or certain formulations to specialists only. And so what was introduced was felt to be a reasonable compromise between um, practicality and, you know, not, not completely uh, cutting people off from uh, an appropriate supply of, of opioid, um, but also being a little bit more um, restrictive in as far as forcing people to maybe justify to themselves or to their colleagues a little more um, as to what, what, you know, what was the grounds for continuing to prescribe. And um, it certainly was not designed, and I can tell you this from having uh, attended multiple consultations with the TGA over the last few years, was certainly not designed to be um, a way of trying to force people onto an opioid taper. It was certainly not a, not designed to try and um, punish or weed out inappropriate prescribers. Um, and the fact that it has sort of coincided with a move, particularly in Victoria, um, where I am, to real-time prescription monitoring um, has created this real climate of, of paranoia um, among a lot of GPs that... Um, you know, is is actually was never the intention of these of these regulations and and these reforms. I, I do think we and and the Faculty of Pain Medicine has very strongly provided this feedback along with our um, colleagues at Pain Australia and the Australian Pain Society. We've provided the feedback that that, that ha there has been a significant unintended consequence of these changes, um, where it has it has resulted in a lot of restriction of access to what would otherwise have been you know, potentially appropriate patients. And that was, um, you know, that the TGA is taking steps to try and remediate that, but it probably would have been better, as was done with the codeine upscheduling, to have a longer lead-in time to allow people to get their heads around what that was going to mean before it was introduced. So in, in retrospect, maybe it would have been better if they'd waited a few more months and put some more educational activities like this podcast, <laughs> you know, done that before the reforms actually came in. There may be um, many GPs who are concerned about how these changes may impact on providing care to people in uh, residential aged care. Um, what, what do you think the impact might be? So apart from possibly a little bit more regulatory red tape, um, I think the the difficulties with providing appropriate pain management in aged care are, are more than just related to the prescribing. Um, there are there are significant problems with adequate assessment of elder patients in pain. 
Um, some people are non-verbal or they, they, they aren't able to communicate their pain properly. We also know that pain is often underestimated in older people because their pain centrally sensitises more quickly. So what may seem to be a relatively innocuous um, you know, bump on the leg or an ingrown toenail or something, um, because as you get older, you lose some of the inhibitory interneurons in the spinal cord. So those pains can can become much more severe, much more quickly. Um, and so using conventional um, painkillers such as anti-inflammatories or opioids or paracetamol for centrally sensitised pain is, um, you know, it's not going to work. So, so there are there are issues with being able to accurately diagnose pain and assess pain in the frail elderly. Um, they're also more prone to side effects. So medications may not be, um, even if they're helpful, they may not be appropriate to prescribe because they may cause significant other knock-on problems for that individual patient. Um, so really the um, the key to managing um, in, a, in an aged care setting where resources may be limited is actually to, to emphasise as much as possible um, the non-pharmacological measures um, such as positioning ergonomics, um, hot water bottles or cold packs, um, compression, elevation, and, and also to be prepared actually to have a slightly lower threshold to, to go to or to involve the care of, uh, of, a, of a pain specialist because it is a, is a more challenging environment. Mm. Yes, and, and we've already been discussing how challenging tapering can be, but it can also have some very positive outcomes. Are there any particular strategies to adopt when thinking about tapering opioids um, for someone who is in residential aged care? Yeah, I think the main the main benefit is is lack of sedation and lack of constipation. You know, that's the, the key. And, and those are enormous drivers of quality of life in, in older patients. Um, you know, if, if someone is in residential aged care and, you know, they're, they're sleeping through their visitors, um, you know, that's, that's really disheartening to all involved. I think also the, the hands-on care that is provided to position a patient correctly to use, you know, cushions or aids to, to get someone in a position that they're comfortable in ensures that that patient feels more supported and it can have a significant um, benefit on social connectedness and quality of life if people are not constantly, um, you know, drowsy from medications. But I think a key a key thing with um, older patients too is that just as in the young, um, also in the old, the distraction strategies tend to work quite well. Um, so using things like music, using things like, um, you know, familiar people or objects to provide um something that that person's brain will find to be extremely engaging, um, that will have a significant, um, you know, a much more positive effect on the person's mood as well as their pain compared to someone, say, in their 30s or 40s. So um, there's, a, there's a publication that the Australian Pain Society has put out about um, guidelines for residential aged care pain management, which is a really, really valuable document. And um, I, I, if I could do one thing to improve pain management in aged care, it would be to, to make that document more widely known throughout the aged care sector. Those uh, strategies you're talking about um, are reliant on other members of the team uh, who are caring for the elderly in aged care. And I think that's quite important that GPs aren't alone in, in what they do. Um, so I was wondering, Don, um, 
how important was it for you to be supported and and what what who supported you through your your journey and your tapering uh, of the health professionals um, other people that did that for you well it was hugely support uh, hugely um, important to have support um, I wouldn't have done it on my own I didn't even recognize my situation um, until my wife po- pointed it out to me and I thought gosh yes I have I have deteriorated I'm at the end of my life at 68 um, now that I've almost fully tapered I've probably got another 30 years um, go and not just seeing your doctor but almost everywhere even if it is through telehealth there are there are group therapy sessions that you can go through a whole range of support ways of um, managing your pain other than using the opioids um yeah and 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 mick um in your experience um what's the role of um say practice nurses nurse practitioners um psychologists and other people in helping support patients um, with chronic pain and through tapering? Well, certainly we've known for probably 30 years that the major contributing factors to poorly managed pain and, and, and you know, disabled people as a result of pain, the, the key risk factors are psychosocial in nature. So um, the things that somebody does to try and adapt to having the chronic pain are actually the most important things that determine outcomes. So if all we're giving people to try and manage their pain is medication that at best will work in every third or fourth patient you give it to, your outcomes are not going to be very positive. So in the Faculty of Pain Medicine, we actually, instead of the the old biopsychosocial model, we actually have turned that around to to try and talk about a socio-psycho-biomedical model where, where you need to understand the social context that somebody's operating in before you and their psychological reaction to their situation before you can even really adequately assess their biomedical problems. Um, so what that implies is that if someone has a problem with pharmacological management of their pain and and that's all you're doing to try and manage their pain, that there is enormous potential uh, gains to be made by properly assessing and addressing those um, socio-psycho aspects of it. Um, And that's where, you know, Don describes really nicely the fact that um, it would never have occurred to him that there was another way to think about having pain um, other than the medical model, which is you go to the doctor, the doctor diagnoses it, gives you a treatment and you get better. And if anything, in medicine over the last 50 years, we've been sort of victims of our own success in, in things like cancer and heart disease where we're incredibly effective at treating it now. But but chronic pain, the more research we do, the more we understand that actually that um, there, there are still some advances to be made in, in the biomedical side of things. But actually, if we just could implement in practice what we already know about the psychosocial management of chronic pain we would make far more progress so so having access to people who've got the right information that can actually engage with you and explain how you know how chronic pain works what's the best strategies for trying to go about having chronic pain and and how to try and um, set up your life so that you only really have the pain that you can't avoid. Um, And and many people will be able to manage quite well with that level of pain. So so really what what our issues with opioid uh, medication and, and, you know, people being stuck on relatively ineffective high doses of opioid, it's really because... In many, many cases, those people have never actually had access to um, things that might help them more. 
and so it's defaulted back to the opioids. So, so certainly introducing, if, if there's not regional access in, you know, in people's areas to a proper, properly trained and constituted and equipped multidisciplinary pain team, um, then, you know, get on the phone to your local politicians and health ministers and, and demand one because that is the evidence-based way to manage chronic pain in the 21st century. So that's given our listeners something to think about doing um, after this podcast. Um, so just um, going on to the, the last area for discussion before we finish, um, we've heard about successful tapering and the strategies that can lead to that success. But what about uh, patients who are resistant to tapering or who cannot be tapered off opioids in primary care despite our best efforts with the team? What would you suggest would be the next step for those patients? Sure. So um, there are a number of, if you like, enhanced strategies that um, that can help people get to lower doses. And um, you know, in in my practice, which is um, you know, it's a, it's a large, comprehensive private pain service in a regional area. So we're certainly not typical of the average pain practice, but. But, you know, we're able to provide inpatient infusions with ketamine, lignocaine and, and, you know, supervise inpatient dose reductions so that if someone is stuck on a particular dose, we can bring them in and intensively manage them over a week or so and, and at least take a chunk out of that dose to get them to settle at a low area. And that may be enough when they're plugged in with the rest of the team to be able to kick off a little bit more reduction. But I think the key thing is, if you if you're trying to understand um, if you have a legacy patient, so you know, the so-called legacy patients, you, you need to understand why are they resistant to reducing their medication. It may be that they actually have very very good reasons for it. Um, it may be that it's been done several times in the past badly, and they're simply not willing to consider it unless they feel as though they're driving the process and and. It, it's, it's challenging for doctors to actually sit back and say, do you know what, I'm going to let you choose what you want to do and I'm going to do what you ask me to do in this regard. Um, because as doctors, we're used to being the ones who people come to for advice and, and giving that advice and that advice working. And so um, a, lot of the, um, a lot of the ill feeling that can occur between patients on opioids and, and doctors who are trying to manage them is, is because of that mismatch between expectations and mismatch between the, the communication that has occurred. So, so the first step, if you have a, a new patient who you've just taken on, who is on what seems to be you know, somewhat eyebrow-raising doses of opioid, there will be a history there that you have to understand. And, and it may be that that person actually has very good reasons why they're on those doses. And um, if there's a pain specialist involved, there should also be a backup letter or some sort of explanation as to what's going on if you're able to contact that specialist. Um, but if, if it is somebody who has just been put up on those doses by someone who doesn't necessarily understand pain management, and they're stuck there, then there is definitely a lot of education and a lot of support that those person, those people will need before they understand enough to be okay with coming down with the dose. And as you say, there are some people who um, it's, it's not in their best interests or indeed the community's or the health system's best interest for those people to be forced off their doses of medication. Um, and so we have to be prepared with a certain number of people to say, yep, we'll just keep doing it every couple of years. We'll, we'll, we'll assess you actively 
for the harms that may be caused, the endocrine problems, the um, mood problems, and we will um, provide you with you know, take home intranasal naloxone so that if you're ever found unconscious, it can be very quickly reversed if it's an opioid problem and, and opioids can be excluded as a cause if, if it's not due to that. So, so there are things you can do to contain the dose, to contain the distress of the patient um, and, and just keep coming away and hanging in there over a period of time. And, you know, it's appropriate for those patients um, for you to just keep, you know, coming back to it not every few months but every year or two um, and seeing whether there is potential at that point in time to chip a bit off the dose. Um, and if there's not, there's not, and you have to be prepared to accept that in some cases. So you, you've mentioned um, referrals to pain specialists and their role. Um, what about uh, drug and alcohol services? Um, when, we, when might you think of referring to them? Yeah, I would say there's two reasons that you would do that. Um, one is if if it becomes clear from that person's lack of willingness to engage with multidisciplinary pain management or other strategies, if that person um, has erratic uh, prescribing behaviour, which is, again, every GP is familiar with the, the warning signs. Um, but if you if you're very... Um, if you form the opinion over a period of time that this person actually primarily has an addiction problem, then that should be managed by a drug and alcohol service and the pain service or the GP can consult on non-opioid-related ways of managing that pain. But in, in, in some patients, you will need to make a decision based on that person's susceptibility to addiction that you're just not going to use opioids to manage their pain. The other the other time that I would suggest referring to a drug and alcohol service is if you have someone who's been stable for a long time on very high doses and is very sedated and not getting anywhere, um, rotation to Suboxone may actually be a very, very valuable strategy. Again, uh, here in Victoria, we're in the fortunate position where our state government permits a small number of pain specialists to do the training and become suboxone prescribers under the pharmacotherapy program. Um, and I'm one of those prescribers. So uh, I, I have probably about a dozen patients um, who I've rotated onto suboxone and um, a couple of them have, have not persisted with the suboxone for various reasons, but most of those patients have done extremely well um, and suboxone has proven to be one of the best things I've ever been able to do for them. So if you're not local, if, if the local um, pain service is not able to do that or if the state regulations where you are um, say that that should happen, it, it's worth having a conversation with your local drug and alcohol service to see whether they can provide that uh, rotation onto suboxone for patients where they're on high stable doses and just don't seem to be able to get it down. Thank you. Lots of information, lots to take in. Um, we're coming towards the end of our time now, so I'll just uh, see if there's anything either of you would like to say before we finish. So, Don, any further comments or tips for GPs? Well, firstly, I was, I was intrigued of Mick's correct statement that the um, pharmaceutical um, delivery of the opioids had suddenly been cut off to many patients and um, my group have been very concerned about that and had a lot of cries for help um, and that perhaps they should have actually considered a slightly more tapering approach to reducing the medicines whereas a few months ago I had a six-month prescription of, of, of a whole heap of drug I now reduced to a single script at a time um, which I personally can manage very well 
Um, but for others who are perhaps beginning the journey of tapering, that's going to be far more alarming. Um, the other thing, although it isn't our topic, and I'm sure we'll have this as a separate podcast, uh, but pacing is a very important aspect of being able to manage tapering. So do you want to just elaborate a little bit more about that? Um, well, one, obviously one of the many, many things that I learned um, from the support groups was um, when when you pace yourself to not go beyond a particular pain threshold, you gradually build up your ability to withstand that level of pain or not get into a zone where you are in such pain and gradually you are able to do more work. Um, combined with other physical methods, I have found that extremely helpful to get my body back into a productive form. Thank you. And, and Mick, any, any... I haven't explained that well. I'm sure someone else can do <laughs> That's it. okay. Mick, any, any final comments from you? Sure, yeah. Um, apart from completely endorsing what Don just said about pacing, pacing more than any other individual strategies is a key skill for anyone with long-term pain and and everyone should learn how to do it um, even those of us who don't have chronic pain um, but but my the thing that I really would like to impress upon um, GPS is that we have we have very good evidence that for people who are well established on opioids if the patient decides to taper and they are allowed to choose the rate at which they taper the commonest outcome is that their pain does not change over the long term. Um, so they will still have a similar amount of pain to whatever it was they started with. People worry that their pain is going to get worse when they reduce the opioids. And um, there are multiple studies now that show, in fact, the least likely thing to happen to that person is that six months later their pain is going to be significantly worse. Far more often the pain is either the same or slightly better. Um, and, in, and in fact, we also have evidence from a very large retrospective study which was recently done that if you have a decision point where somebody's already on a moderate to high dose of opioids and you increase the dose by 20%, um, a year later their pain is worse and their quality of life is significantly worse in most cases. So, so it's all about using these drugs for what they're good for and our, our appreciation for the um, therapeutic range of opioids has contracted significantly and the vast majority of my patients are on less than 60 milligrams of morphine equivalent a day um, and they do just as well as 15 years ago when I was happy for them to be on higher doses. Thank you. I, I think such important points to take away from this and I'd like to thank you both for your time and thank everybody who's listening. Um, before we do go, I'd just like to mention our resources to help with tapering conversations including conversation starters and a series of communication videos, uh, one of which is now available on our website and three are to be available shortly. If you would like to find out more about opioids, chronic pain and the Bigger Picture program um, and find resources that can help you, we will put some links in the podcast, des podcast description. Please send any questions or suggestions for future podcasts by MPS Medicine Wise via Twitter or LinkedIn. So goodbye and thank you all for listening. For more information about the safe and wise use of medicines, visit the NPS Medicine Wise website at nps.org.au.